Good evening. We have set aside uh, several weeks at the beginning of this year to explore God, to have uh, a conversation, if you will, for those that are on uh, a journey of faith, those that have questions. And I'm Charles Butler, one of the uh, assistant pastors here at the church, and uh, Tonight, my topic is, is Christianity too narrow? So we want to talk about that for a little bit. Now, I want to start with a, a personal story. Several years ago, I started having some pain in my back, and my right foot would start to go a little bit numb occasionally. And so I went to my family doctor, and he said, well, you need to go to an orthopedist. So I went to the orthopedist. And the orthopedist said, well, you need to get an MRI. So I went downstairs to the MRI department. Now, the tech met me as I walked into the first room, and we started talking about the process. They placed me on the table, put some headphones on my ears, slide me into the tube, and then he showed me the machine looks highly suspect to me. I'm a little claustrophobic. And that tube looks like it was not built with this body in mind. But I man up and try it. I lie on the table, my head toward the opening. The tech assures me that he'll bring me out if there's any problem. But he says, the key is to keep on breathing. That sounds ominous. <laughs> he, he presses the button. I start sliding into the tube. My head slowly moves from the light into the shadow. Then my shoulders come to the opening. They're wider than the tube. As the table slides forward, my shoulders bump a little bit as they squeeze through. And then my arms are pinned to my body, pressed down against my sides. By the time it gets to my elbows, I'm saying, get me out. Now, contrary to my nightmare scenarios about being stuck in the tube, left alone in the dark, unable to escape, the tech immediately reversed the table. The tube slides up my arms. Elbow to sh over the biceps to the shoulder. My head slides from shadow back into light. I'm out. <laughs> I would not be getting an MRI that day. Uh, a side word. He then tells me there's an open MRI just five minutes away. Why did you put me through this? But that MRI machine. That was too narrow for me. So I get it when someone asks, is Christianity too narrow? Narrow can be restrictive and even terrifying. On the other hand, we're great fans of the Olympics, summer or winter. One of the things that we noticed is that 
For the athletes, the form of their clothes follows the function that the clothing is to perform. So take the ski jumpers. These suicidal maniacs who leap from a giant slide built into a mountainside, and then they try to fly without wings. But if you look closely, you can see the flight suit is is kind of loose and bulky and a bit stiff. You can, you can see it wrinkling in the wind. Their goal is to catch the air and hopefully uh, help the wearer to sail farther than his competitors. But everything the downhill skiers use is crafted to increase speed. The design of the skis, the wax used on the bottom, the texture and fit of their clothing, slick, close-fitting uh, gear that minimizes air drag and improves their speed. For them, narrow is a good thing. It means improved performance. So when people say Christianity is too narrow, it makes me ask in what way they think it's too narrow. Now, in the video, there was a young woman who complained that she found herself judged by religious friends. This wasn't specifically said about Christianity, but some Christians have been known to do this. It happens when Christianity gets identified as a lifestyle defined by what a person doesn't do. It's not a new complaint. I know, because early in my Christian life, I judged people mercilessly. It's hard to keep close friends when you're judging everybody. But that's a version of Christianity that has drifted from the gospel and into moralism. A list of lifestyle choices that become the test of whether or not you're going to get into heaven whether or not you're going to be accepted by the group. It's an, it's an unfortunate caricature of genuine Christianity. And if you've experienced that, I can only apologize. And thank you for not giving up completely on God or Christianity by virtue of the fact that you're here tonight. And then there are folks that see religions as different paths to the same desired outcomes. I'm sure you've seen this bumper sticker. They all, it seems, all the world religions want peace in the world, want love and goodness in people. The details of the journey may differ, they say, but the destination is the same. This morning, Michael Best uh, mentioned the story from India of the king and the blind men. The king let them encounter an elephant. One touched the side, said it was like a wall. Another found the tail, said it was like a rope. One felt an ear. Oh, it's a fan. The one who found the trunk thought it was like a snake or a palm tree. The major religions, it says, are like the blind men encountering the elephant. Each one has a portion of the truth. But the only way to know that they have a portion of the truth is if you're in the position of the king. The person who says... They see the whole elephant, which is necessary to say you only see a part. The person that says they see the whole elephant 
is claiming that they have the whole truth, the very thing that they're saying none of the world religions have. That seems a bit arrogant. In reality, the major religions are only superficially similar. They're fundamentally different. Now, Michael Green is, research is a research professor at Oxford, and in his book, Don't All Religions Lead to God?, he identifies seven categories of religion. Sorry about the size, but I was trying to get seven of them up there. Now, I know that as soon as I put a chart like that up there, you stop paying attention to me, but that's okay for a moment. While you're looking at it, I'd like to read to you a portion of Steve Turner's poem, Creed. Now, Steve Turner's a, a British music journalist and poet. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex, before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Mohammed, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. I, I love his cynical humor. His, his poem goes on a bit from there. But he, he's right. The differences are significant between the world religions. And so in the time that I have left tonight, I thought what would be most helpful for my part in this series is to explain why biblical Christianity is the way it is. And then you can decide if it's narrow like that MRI tube, or narrow like a downhill skier's suit. Now, the Bible begins with God as creator and king of the universe. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the creation that's described in what follows shows that God is infinite in power and intelligence. He's generous. He loves beauty. And he is a God who speaks. He speaks each stage of creation into existence. The pinnacle of that creation is man and woman. He didn't simply speak them into existence. He formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God personally crafted man and woman. They're described as being made in the image of God, something that is said of no other creature. God places them in a garden that he planted, places all the earth and its creatures under their dominion. How he relates to them is unique in all creation. It is a personal, interactive relationship. 
as he hands them the keys to the planet, he gives some basic instructions. They are incredible in their latitude and had one restriction. Genesis 2.16, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, because Adam and Eve trust God at this point, they follow his instructions and they enjoy his blessings. God declares it all very good. If they continued that way, this would have been a story of tranquility and pleasantness. Life would have been happy, prosperous, uncomplicated. But Satan, a created being who had rebelled against God himself, planted seeds of distrust in Adam and Eve. He questioned them about God's restriction and then told them, Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Have you ever tasted Tylenol? Ever made the mistake of chewing it or letting that tablet sit in your mouth too long? They taste pretty bad. I picked up a bottle of Walgreens house brand of acetaminophen a few days ago. They put a sugar shell on the pill to make it go down. You know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> Satan coated his lie with a little truth to help it go down. If they choose to rebel against God, which isn't rebelling, you see, it's just choosing to eat of this wonderful tree. If they choose to rebel against God and eat of the forbidden fruit, they won't drop down physically dead at that moment. What he didn't tell them was that the immediate death was going to be in their connection to God. And they will know good and evil, but it's because they will have taken on the role of choosing for themselves what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. The lie under the sugar coating is the idea that they would be like God, something that beyond being created in the image of God, that it wasn't going to happen. They could not become sovereign themselves and so live any way that they chose. But after a brief deliberation, they made their choice. They ate the fruit. They chose to believe Satan's words rather than believe God's. They took their trust away from God, invested it in Satan. They rebelled. They broke their relationship with God. Pastor and author Tim Keller describes it this way. Because our relationship with God has been broken, all other relationships with other human beings, with our very selves, with the created world, 
are also ruptured. The result is spiritual, psychological, social, and physical decay and breakdown. Everything under human dominion, the earth and all on it, is affected. So how does God respond to this act of rebellion? Well, obviously, he calls them to account for their actions, and he issues judgment. The earth will no longer work the way it was designed to work. Human relationships that had worked would become distrustful and full of strife. Intimate interaction with God is gone. It's replaced with distance, alienation. Trusting Satan and his incitement to rebellion introduced a toxin into the human race that the Bible calls sin. Isaiah, an Old Testament writer, describes it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Adam and Eve were aware that they had gone their own way. We, however, we no longer recognize that our independence is straying from God. When we encounter the toxicity, the decay, and the breakdown in the various areas of life, we come up with explanations and attempt to find and implement solutions that don't include or depend on God. That's why author Larry Crabb describes sin within us as being hardwired to turn away from God when faced with disappointment or suffering. This is the problem that God is seeking to solve in historic biblical Christianity. The problem that sin creates between us and God. Our rebellion cannot be excused. It's contrary to who God is and the way he, cre- he designed his creation to work. It brings decay and death at every level. It must be dealt with, eradicated. God moved in judgment against humanity because of their sin, but that wasn't his only response. There's a sentence in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, that begins, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God loves us. He created us in his image so that relationship with us would be possible. He didn't do this because he was in need of someone to love. Pastor McCarthy explained on the the Sunday morning when we opened this series that God is one and yet three persons, what we know as the Trinity. There was a fully satisfying love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit before a single particle of the universe was created. It is the overflow of that love that moved him to create us. He wants to invite us into the love of the Trinity. Our sin 
however, is in the way. How will God address it? There are three parts to the answer. The first is found in the story of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. God had promised to make him into a great nation, that he would have many, many descendants. But Abraham was getting older and older. The time for having children had gone past. The time for his wife to have children had gone past. And in Genesis 15, God, Abraham brings that to God's attention. So God tells him to go outside and gaze into the night sky of the ancient Near East. And the sky is filled with stars from one end of the horizon to the other. And God says to Abraham, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. In the face of something very difficult, in the face of something that seemed humanly impossible, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. See, if you recall, the, the problem with sin got started because Adam and Eve decided to stop believing God and chose to believe Satan instead. They took their trust from God and they invested it in Satan. The result? was rebellion, death, and decay. Abraham, a childless old man with an old wife, chooses to trust God that he will have a child with his wife and that the descendants of that child will become the great nation that God has promised. Because Abraham trusted God, because Abraham believed God, God counted it as righteousness to Abraham. Faith, trusting God, believing God, is the first piece of how God will address the obstacle of our sin. The second piece comes from a later part of Israel's history with God. God had made a covenant with them through Moses that we know as the law. The law was a provision to, the law had a provision to save a person's life if they sinned. Because the penalty for rebelling against God was the same in Israel as it was in the Garden of Eden death. An Israeli, however, could bring a sheep, a goat, or an ox to the temple and have that animal sacrificed in his or her place. God allowed the substitution. The animal's death provided atonement, a covering over of the sin. Substitution is that second piece. Now, the third is self-awareness. 
what I mean is this. My ability to honestly see and acknowledge my status before God. When I have this self-awareness and I sin, I repent. The stories are from the first two kings of Israel. The first king, Saul, had been given an assignment by God to carry out. But when he saw that he could profit from the situation, if he didn't do it God's way, he disobeyed God. He was confronted about it by Samuel, God's prophet. And he tried to evade, tried to make excuses. And after those ran out, he reluctantly and with much resistance and not a lot of sincerity admitted that he had sinned. But he was more concerned about being publicly honored before his people than he was about humbling himself before God. The second king of Israel, David, sinned famously by taking the young wife of one of his warriors, Bathsheba, took her forcibly to bed while her husband was away at war. She got pregnant. He brought the husband home from the battle, hoping that he would go home, have sex with his wife, and think the baby was his. The plan failed. He wouldn't go home. So David sent him back to the battle and had him killed. When he was confronted by Nathan, God's prophet, about the adultery and the murder, both of which carried the death penalty under the law. There was no sacrifice. David immediately, when confronted, owned what he had done and simply said, I have sinned before the Lord. David repented. Saul did not. Repentance is the third piece of how God addresses the problem of our sin. They come together in the best-known passage in the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, from, from this passage, God's love is front and center. It is his motivation for all that follows. The second piece that I mentioned, substitution, is what then comes first in this passage. God gave his only son. He gave him as a substitute. Jesus lived the perfect life that pleased God, the life that we should have lived but failed to do so. And then he willingly gave his life in our place, dying for our sin. The judgment has been issued and satisfied, proven by the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. If his death had not been sufficient, he would still be in the grave. 
Then comes the first piece, faith, trusting God. Whoever believes in what God has done in sending Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. The consequences of going our way are reversed. Death is replaced by life. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe God and the judgment against us for our sin is canceled. We won't perish in eternal judgment in hell. And we are granted eternal life in its place. Eternal life is not simply unending life, but the quality of life that God intended when he created human beings. Our eternity with God will be without pain or trauma. Instead, it will be filled with love, with joy unspeakable, with new kindnesses poured out by God on us throughout the timeless ages to come. The third piece, repentance, comes in verses 17 and 18. Condemnation is our status before God without a suitable substitute that we have trusted. And the only suitable substitute for God is Jesus. When I honestly recognize my status before God without Jesus, I own my sin without excuse or evasion, and I repent. But if I choose not to repent, I'm condemned because I have not believed. I have not trusted what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. And without that, I'm cut off from God's love. And that is the problem that Christianity solves. It removes the obstacle that keeps me from entering into God's love. So, is Christianity too narrow? As the Bible presents it, and the Bible is the source of Christianity, God loves us, but we all sin. Our sin is an obstacle to God's love that has to be addressed. God is just, so he must judge sin, but his love moves him to make provision so that our sin can be removed. For it to be removed, we must place our trust in God, repent of our sin, and receive the substitute that he has provided in Jesus. When that happens, God gives to us eternal life. Life as he intended us to live it. Life to the full. Life unending. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, therefore, Christ's 
We are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are not reconciled to God, understand that this is Christianity. This offer, this invitation into the love of the Trinity, God removing the obstacles that stand in the way, if we will simply acknowledge and repent, if we will trust and believe in the substitute that he has provided for us, will you? After our service ends tonight, there will be prayer partners on this side. And they are available to talk with you, answer questions about this process. I urge you not to leave this place tonight with questions unanswered. God is ready to receive you. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded overwhelmed by how kind, how generous, how merciful, how forgiving, how loving you are. And yet, it often takes a while for you to do your work in us and open our eyes and help us to see, help us to grasp, help us to understand. I'm grateful, God. For that time many years ago when you opened my eyes, helped me to see the substitute that you had provided, enabled me to believe, to trust what you had done, and to receive the life that you offer. I pray, Father, that anyone under the sound of my voice that, that does not have that assurance of sins forgiven that has not been restored in their relationship with you, that they would not leave here tonight without at least getting answers to the questions. But Father, we pray that you would welcome them into your love. Pray that could happen even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.